All right, so this morning we are kicking off a brand new series that we are calling True-ish. And I love that word, ish. Like, it's really like, it's anytime you get a time from an Irish person, like, that's implied, right? <laughs> Meet at one ish. Like any time around there is fine. And so we have these statements though that many of us have heard and maybe we even think, okay, that's probably true and partly it is. And what we're going to see is it is actually true-ish. There's some parts of it that actually aren't true. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to walk through Luke 15 together in just a few minutes. But as we get started this morning, I thought we would start with a little game where I would humiliate myself in front of you guys. Uh, uh, So here it is. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. So I am going to tell you three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie. And you have to raise your hand and guess which one is which. So I'll go through all the statements, and then we'll ask. And for a raise of hands, you can see which one you think is false um, and hope you see how gross you think I actually am. All right, so here we go. Two truths and a lie. Here's the statements. I once ate a scab for a 10-year-old dare. I once collected moldy dog poo thinking it was a caterpillar. And I once went to a swim party in white gym shorts, not knowing they were see-through. All right, how many people think I ate a scab is the false? How many people think collecting moldy dog poo, thinking it was a caterpillar, is false? How many people think going to a swim party with gym shorts that are see-through was false? Unfortunately, that was not false. Um, I have never eaten a scab for $10 or any amount of money. Like, I don't think 100 euro would do it for me, or 1,000 euro, we, I'd debate it for 1,000. But like, 10 euro, not, not enough. Okay, here's, here's the next one. Next statement, here's we go. As a kid, I told a girl that I didn't like who wanted to date me that I was probably going to a die in war, so she wouldn't want to date me. Next statement is tried multiple times to bite my toenails. Next statement was nervous about swallowing watermelon seeds because someone told me they would grow inside of you. (laughs) All right, so how many people think that, remember, we're raising our hands for the false one. How many people think it's false that I told a girl I was going to die in war to avoid dating her? Unfortunately, that's true. (laughs) How many people think that I have tried to bite my toenails? Or or that I have tried multiple times to bite my toenails? Yeah, that's false. You guys know how flexible I am? That ain't, no chance that's happening. And I did, in fact, get terrified that a watermelon was going to grow inside of me for a while. The guy who told me had a really big belly, too. He's like, look at me. I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, that, that, that's truth me. All right, last ones. Here we go. Randomly, I flex when people hug me so they think that I'm really strong. Or I tried to climb out of a second-story window using clo- or clothes hangers. Or as a teenager, I slept in my truck the first time I owned it. So how many, who, how many people think the false one is I randomly flex when people hug me? All right, how many people think that's false? If you hope that's false, you don't know me very well, right? That's true. And some of you have hugged me and been like, I knew it. Right. Next one, tried to climb out of a window using cloak hangers. How many people think that's false? Yeah, unfortunately, that was true. Last, the the one that's false is as a teenager, I didn't actually sleep in my truck. Uh, I liked my bed too much. So there are these statements, and some of them, like, you know, they're true or or they're true-ish. And we start going through these different things. And we have these statements that that we hear from time to time. They sound really spiritual, but we just got to ask the question, are they they true? 
And so today we're going to be discussing the statement, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. And so this is the statement we're going to be diving into as we think about that statement. Just as a raise of hand, who has heard this before? All right. Almost all of us have heard this statement before. And the reality is, the question is, is it true? Or is it true-ish? Like, what is it about this statement? Is it true? And so here's the reality is this statement comes from the exact same place that the early bird gets the worm or early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that is not the Bible. So if you survey the scriptures, you survey the Bible, this statement is nowhere to be found. You will not find this statement. And so when we look at this statement, is it true? We can think about it in a practical sense, right? Practically speaking, like parts of this statement is true, right? So God helps those who helps themselves. If you study for an exam and you're praying and asking God, God, would you help me to remember the things that I've studied? God helps those who helps themselves. Or if it's one of those times where like you haven't studied at all and you're just like, God, pull off a miracle here. I need to pass this exam. Give me all the answers. Like, is God going to answer that question? I don't know. Like, I hope Jesus isn't going to waste one of, our, one of your miracles on that. But like, is it true? In a practical sense, we can see that. Or maybe think about applying for a job. We're praying, God, give me a job while I sit back watching Netflix and not applying for any jobs. Job, God, can you give me a job? He, he can, but is he going to do that? Or is that one of those times we have to help ourselves a little bit? We actually have to send out some CVs. We actually have to apply to some jobs. And, and so if we kept this in the practical, the very, very minute little practical parts, like, yeah, sure, it could make sense. The problem is we don't leave this in the practical. The problem is we move this into the spiritual. And when it does, it starts to swing very much from the true to the true-ish. And we look at this, light, this statement in the light of our salvation. This is when part of the problem begins to arise. This is when we start to get really, really messed up. We start to think about it this way. We start to say, okay, I have to earn my way to God. Or we have to say, okay, God, I'm going to take some steps towards you. I'm going to do some things that you want me to do. And then you can love me. And then you'll be able to accept me. Or we start thinking, okay, God helps those who help themselves. So I've got all these sin issues. I've got all these problems in my life, all these things I need to get worked out. Then once I get them worked out, then I can come to God. The problem is we can't work those out on our own anyway. And so we are just left in this bad cycle of just being like, okay, God, I'll just clean myself up. I'll just clean myself up. And and we can't. And so we get stuck there and we start to think of these things as like we come to God with our CV. We come to God with all of our, all of our qualifications. We come to God, we lay everything we have good in, in front of him and say, God, now will you love me? God, now can you help me? And the reality is that's not just that's not the way it works. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes this. He says, but... God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when we had our act together. Isn't that what Paul says? No, that's not what he says, right? Paul says, when God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when we showed up to church every Sunday for a year. Right? Is that what, that's what it says? No, what's the scripture say? when God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were still a mess, while we had nothing good to give, when we couldn't present anything good before him, Jesus comes and he shows up for us. 
We didn't have to work up enough credibility. We didn't have to bank enough answered prayers. We didn't have to work hard enough for God to show up and to give us Jesus. No, he shows up while we were still a mess, while we were still messed up. And can I just remind you of something, this reality? Is we still have nothing to offer God to to be willing to, to give his son to die for us. There is nothing that we can do. We don't have enough good things that we can accumulate. We don't have enough qualifications. We don't have any, enough, any good enough things where we can say, okay, now, God, you can love me. Now, God, you can accept me. It's impossible for us to be able to, show, to, to have God accept us on our, own, on our own terms. We still bring nothing to the table. And the good news of the gospel is what Paul writes for us in Ephesians 2. He says this. He says, God saved you. By his grace, when you believed, catch this, you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so no one can boast about it. Salvation, catch that phrase again. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so no one can boast about it. Because here's the reality. Salvation is not based on good things that we do, but a good thing that Jesus did. Grace is opposed to earning. And so when we look at a statement like this, like God helps those who helps themselves, when we move this out of the practical and into the spiritual, it starts to mess some things up. And you start to see that it's not only, it's not true. It's not even true-ish. Like it's completely false. It it, it goes against the, the look of the scriptures. And so now maybe some of you are thinking like, okay, I don't have any role to play in my salvation. I don't have anything to do in that. Guess what? You do. So let's read Paul's words, or Peter's words, in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts 2, just to give you a rundown of the story, the Holy Spirit has showed up on the scene on the day of Pentecost. And this, this dude, Peter, who was this terrified disciple, has now been empowered by the Holy Spirit. The disciples go out of the upper room, and they speak this incredibly powerful sermon. And Peter gives this message that's so powerful, and we find this. It says, Peter's words cut them to the heart. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, What shall we do? And so they know there's something that they need to do to this. There's something that they need to do because of what has happened, because of what God has done for them, because of the death that Jesus has died. There's something that they need to do, and Peter gives them the steps. He says, here's what you do. Each of you needs to repent and turn to God and then be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the Holy Spirit. So what's our job? Our job is... To repent. Our job is to turn away from our sins. Our job is to respond to a God who has already been pursuing us. God isn't helping us because we can help ourselves. No, the reality is, is, is God has been pursuing us from the very beginning. The Holy Spirit has been pursuing us. It's the Holy Spirit's words who is convicting people. It's the Holy Spirit's words who are piercing them to the heart. And so our response, our job and our salvation is we respond. We respond to God. Our our response is to to respond to what the Holy Spirit has already been doing. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin, and he's really good at it. And so we respond to that. We respond to what he's done in repentance, to turn away from our sins and turn to, to God and turn to him. And there's a quote, a moment in the book, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, that I think is just an incredible, incredible moment. If you've read this book, it's a great book. 
But there, there's one of these quotes where, where this, this guy Eustace and this girl called Jill, and they're having this conversation, and they've kind of run away a little bit from school, and they're hiding out, and, and Eustace has told her all about Narnia. And so finally, they just start crying out, Aslan, Aslan. And they finally, they get to go to Narnia, and it's really cool, and it's really exciting. And then Aslan shows up and has a conversation with Jill, and he's telling her, hey, Jill, here's what I have brought you here for. Here's what I've told you. Here's what I have for you. And Jill's really confused by this. She was like, no, 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 Aslan, that's not the way it worked. You didn't call me. I called you. And I love this quote from Aslan. He's, he's playing the, the portrait of God, but he says this. He said, you would not have called me unless I had been calling you. That's, it. That's what it is. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. It's calling us. It's calling us back to God. God is calling us back to himself. And so we step out and we come to him and we, we, we respond to what he has been calling us to. And here's the reality. If God only helps those who helps themselves, we are all in trouble. We are all in big trouble. Because here's the reality. We are not very good at fixing ourselves. Any, anybody New Year's resolution, people? It's a raise of hands. All right, two and a half of us. All right, three. All right, some of us not really sure. I'm a New Year's resolution kind of guy. But what I've decided to start doing is I've made my New Year's resolutions a little more broad as I've gotten older. It used to be I was going to run this many days or this many times. And now my New Year's resolutions are a little more broad. I want to I be healthy or have a healthy exercise lifestyle, like that's good. And I used to say, I want to read 35 books, and then I had two kids, and now I'm like, I want to read anywhere from 30 to 35, give myself a little bit of wiggle room there. And like, so here's the thing, though. If you look at New Year's resolutions, 80% of New Year's resolutions are failed and given up on by February. One month in, four out of five are like, yeah, no, that's not happening. So a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, I went on Twitter, and I just started searching New Year's resolutions, and I found some, some tweets from January 1st, and I thought these were really good, about people and their New Year's resolutions. Here's what one says. I've already broken my New Year's resolution around eating healthy, but I got to lunch this time, which is an improvement from last year, so I am taking positives out of the effort. Here, here's another one. It's not even midnight, and I've already broke three of my New Year's resolutions and two out of the Ten Commandments. This is my favorite. I have broken every single one of my resolutions except stay sexy. (laughs) So so there you go. All right. And so we're we're not very good at fixing ourselves, right? We're not very good at it. And so the reality is we can't fix ourselves even if we worked hard enough to keep our New Year's resolutions, even if we decided that we were going to run every day and we worked hard enough or we decided that we were going to actually stop watching so much TV or we tried to do all these things. We're not very good at it. We're not great at it. We're not good at fixing ourselves. And so what I want to do is I want to lay all of my cards on the table. And here's the reality is God helped us because we couldn't help ourselves. That's the truth. Does God help those who help themselves? True-ish, maybe. But the truth is God helped us because we could not help ourselves. Remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died. Long before we could acknowledge our sinfulness, Jesus died for us. Long before we could help ourselves, God helped us. And one of the things that I've been learning as I'm a parent 
is you start to learn your, your kid's tendencies. You start to learn some things about your kid. And a couple of weeks ago, Ava, Emma came and accused Ava of something. And immediately, Tiffany and I were like, yeah, no, that didn't happen. Because it's not her tendency. It is not something that Ava has ever done in her four years of life. And so we're like, okay, we know that wasn't the case. Then there was an accusation of, of something where like, okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, we can see that playing out, absolutely. But like, there was this, we know their tendencies, right? We kind of know like what they do for the most part. Like, you kind of get them a little bit. And here's the truth is, is God is the same way with us. He knows our tendencies. He knows our struggles. He knows the temptations and the sins that continue to bubble up inside of us. He knows our temptations. He knows our tendencies. He knows my tendencies towards pride and selfishness and insecurity. He knows my temptation with people-pleasing or, or whatever they may be. Like He knows all these tendencies about us as a good father. He knows them, but he helps us anyway because he knows that we can't help ourselves. Man, if God only helps those who helps themselves, we are all hopeless. We don't have a prayer. We don't have a chance if God helps those who helps themselves, and that's all he does. Because the reality is, in my life, and you've probably been the same way, is my, my sinfulness in my life rears its ugly head more often than I wish to admit. Anyone with me on that? Yeah. My righteousness, that I, the best that I have to offer, really goes along with what Isaiah talks about. Righteousness in Isaiah 64, where he says, our, our righteousness, what we bring before God, is equivalent that to, to a used tampon. Or a, uh, a dirty nappy, if you don't like the metaphor there, whatever. Like, it's biblical, it's fine. Right? That's our righteousness. That's the best we've got. And so the reality is, is our sinfulness, it rears its ugly head. And if you sit back and you start examining your life and you look about all the things of you, you look at your tendencies, you look at your sinfulness, you look at the messes that you tend to make in life, you're going to realize that you need some help. And you're going to hope and pray that that, that statement, God helps those who help themselves, isn't true. Because here's the reality. If you are not the worst sinner that you know, you do not know yourself very well. Because you know your thoughts. You know the struggles that no one else knows about. And so we will never, we will never be able to come to accept the grace of the Father until we realize that we can't help ourselves. We are no longer, we are never going to be able to experience the forgiveness that Jesus died to give us if we don't acknowledge our own sinfulness. Back in year or AD, 84, I think, so 400 AD, St. Augustine wrote these powerful lines in his, his book called Confessions. He says, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. So for some of us in the room, maybe that's the, that's the statement today. As we stop trying to help ourselves, we stop thinking, hey, I'm good enough. I can make my way to God. I can work up enough. I can, I can be spiritual enough. I can finally make my way to him. And just to, to acknowledge our own sinfulness, to acknowledge our, our mess that we have made, because here's the reality, is we are all more sinful than we ever want to admit but you are loved more than you ever dreamed possible. Because God knows. God knows your tendencies. He knows your sinfulness. He knows the temptation. He knows it. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You are more sinful. We are all more sinful than we ever want to admit, but we are all more loved than we could ever dream or we could ever imagine. 
And this is the story that we see play out in three stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. So in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables uh, about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost boy. Uh, And so I just want to make sure we understand what a parable is. A parable is simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so as we walk through the history of the first century, Jesus wasn't the first person to teach and tell parables. He perfected the teaching. He perfected it, but he wasn't the first one to do it. But Jesus does an incredible, incredible job. And so what I want us to do is I want us to get the context of what these parables are getting ready to jump into. So in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, here's what it says. He says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So here's the audience, right? So there's tax collectors, there's notorious sinners. And so maybe as we begin to think about tax collectors, I want us to make sure that we get the feel for the first century. These aren't just people who work for the government and like, hey, sorry, that time of year. No, tax collectors in in that day, in the first century, would be viewed the way that we would view like a pimp. Or somebody who like does human trafficking. Like that's the idea here. Someone that no one wanted to spend any time with, someone no one wanted to be around. What tax collectors did, they made their living by cheating people. No one was really excited to see the tax collector. He was he was hated. They, no one wanted to see them. And then they say notorious sinners. So these are people who are so good at sinning that everyone knows about it. And these are the people that are in, spending time with Jesus. And so, verse two. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Here's the thing. If there were ever someone who could help themselves, it was the Pharisees. But they're the people who are undone. They're the people who are upset about what Jesus is doing. The people that Jesus is spending time with. In the first century, what would have happened is is people would have viewed your table So the people who come around and eat with you as a miniature version of the temple. And so a lot of scholars believe that one of the things that got Jesus killed wasn't just what he said, but it's who he ate with. That Jesus was willing to eat with these people that no one else would eat with. And that that makes the religious leaders uncomfortable. And catch that last phrase, even eating with them. So Jesus was willing to eat with these sinful people. Jesus was willing to sit around the table of sinful and notorious people that no one else wanted to spend time with. And this made the Pharisees, this made the teachers of the religious law, it made them mad. It made them upset. And so here's the thing. These are the people that Jesus is telling the story to. These are the people that Jesus is giving these three powerful stories to. The first is about a lost sheep. And so the story goes that this man has a hundred sheep and he loses one and he leaves the 99 to go chase after the one. We don't have time to unpack that story, but I love that story because I'll be really honest. If I had a hundred sheep, if I lost one, I probably wouldn't notice. I'd notice if I lost one of my two kids, but if I had a hundred sheep and I lost one, I wouldn't notice. But Jesus does. Jesus cares about the one. And he is willing to leave the 99 to chase after that one. That is how loved you are, is that Jesus would notice out of a crowd of 100, if you walked off, Jesus would know. And so Jesus goes in in the story, he searched for it, and there's celebration. In verse 7, it says, In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So there's a party for this one sheep that, that, that has returned. The next story is about a lost coin. 
So this lady has 10 lost coins. I can identify a little more with this story because if I lost a coin, if I only had 10, I'd probably, I'd probably know that I had lost it. But here's what she does. She turns the house upside down. She searches everywhere to find this one single coin. And, and then finally she finds it and there's celebration again. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And so Jesus tells these stories. And then he dives into the next story, which is the longest parable, longest story that Jesus tells. It's the parable of the prodigal son, the lost son, whatever you want to call it. So I'm just going to read it together. We'll read it in its entirety, then we'll just walk through it uh, together. Let's pick up in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. To illustrate the point farther, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About, that, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, and no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, a hired, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me as one of your hired servants. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servant, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a, finger, a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the, fatten, the calf that we have been fattening. So because we, we must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now his rent turned to life. And so he was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the other son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all my time, you never gave me even a young goat to feast with my friend. Yet when the son of yours comes back and squanders your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by, feed, by killing the fattened calf. His father told him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he's found. Three stories, three lost things, three parties. This is what we see playing out in Luke chapter 15. And what I want to make sure that we understand is when Jesus is telling these stories, he's telling it to the religious leaders, he's telling it to the Pharisees, he wants them to know Jesus loves sinful people. And he celebrates when they turn to him. And I want to make sure that we understand this too, is this story, sometimes it can be misunderstood, this story is not about the son. The story is about the father. 
Because when we read this story in context of the other stories, let me just ask you, what did the sheep do to be found? Nothing. I've had sheep before. They do the opposite of coming to be found. They would run away like he was the one who ran off. No, it was the father. It was the shepherd who went after the one sheep that was found. What did the coin do to be found? Is it like flipping up and down, spinning around? Hey, look at me. No, it's just hanging out with the dust bunnies, right? And waiting for the lady to find it. Same thing is true of this story. Is This story is not about the son. It's about the father. And we're going to talk, we'll, we'll talk about repentance. And, and that's an important part of the story. But there, there's something that we need to look at. We've got to see this story. And it's a beautiful picture of our dad. It's a beautiful picture of our father. And it's a beautiful truth that God helps us because we could not help ourselves. So in verse 12, let's walk through the story together. In verse 12, the younger son said to his father, I want my share of the estate now because you before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons. And I want to make sure that we get the gut check statement that that's meant to be. In essence, what the son is saying, dad, I wish you were dead. I'm going to treat you as if you were dead. Go ahead and pay me what you would pay me when you die. <coughs> Lovely son, right? Like this is what he begins. This is what he comes and this is what he says, dad, I wish you were dead. And to his dad's credit, he does. He gives it to him. Let's continue reading, 13 through 16. It says, A few days later, the younger son moved all of his belongings, or packed all of his belongings, and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. And about that time, when his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pig looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. I think it's a really significant moment for us. This is what sin does, right? Sin just leaves us wrecked. Like, we, we can pretend that sin isn't a big deal. We can flirt around with it. We can play with it and be like, oh, yeah, no, no. oh, it's sin, but you know what? Wink, wink. But the reality is this is what sin does. Sin destroys us, destroys our lives. For this guy, like, this is what it does. He goes and he lives this wild living, and it's great until it's not. And that's what sin does, right? It's like sin is fun until it starts catching up with you, or there's always more. You need a little bit more. You need a little bit more. You need a little bit more. And this guy, he's finished. He has nothing left. And sin may seem appealing in the moment, but here's the reality about sin. I want to make sure you guys hear this. Sin always makes promises that it can't keep. That's what sin does. It makes promises that it can't keep. It promises satisfaction. It promises joy. It promises meaning. It promises love. It promises all these things, but sin makes promises that it can't keep. And here's the truth, is that without Jesus, we are all in the pig pen. Without Jesus, we are all in the pig pen, wanting to eat the slop that the guy is giving the pigs. This is where we are. If God helps those who help themselves, this is us. We are camped out in a pig pen. Let's even deal with the fact that this guy is probably Jewish and he's not even supposed to be around pigs and now he's feeding the pigs. Like That's how messy his life has gotten. And this is where we are. Verse 17, it says this. He says, when he finally came to his senses. And that part's important. The story, no, it isn't about the son. It's about the father, but this part is important. When he came to his senses. There's repentance here. 
There's humility, at least a little bit. There's a little bit of something going on here. It's not the main point of the story. But like he, he gets to this point, he's like, what I am doing, the sin that I am living, the way that I've tried to do my own life, it is not working. And I'm sure all of us have had one of those moments in our lives, right? We've had those moments where it's like, what, my way? Man, it's not working. I've tried it my own way. I've tried doing all these things, and it just isn't going on. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to come to our senses? What are we going to do in that moment? Are we going to dig deeper into the pig pen? Or are we going to turn to the Holy Spirit? Are we going to turn to the Father who's been pursuing us? Because there comes a point in our lives where all of us have to reach this point where enough's enough. I'm not going to keep chasing after this anymore. I'm not going to keep going after this sin problem, this thing anymore. That just Today's the day. This is it. He goes on, he said, and he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to, to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. So I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Man, I, I love this. Oh, please make me like one of your hired servants. I love this moment. I, I'm, I, I have a vivid imagination with this story. And so what I do is I picture this guy, like he's, he's in the pig pen, he's nasty, he's gross, and he's like, okay, and he starts getting out this piece of paper and he's writing, dear dad, if I had to line up all the dads in the entire world and can only pick, no, that's stupid, he throws it away. All right, dear dad, I sure miss going for long walks with you. I sure miss when you tuck me in at night. No, that's stupid. And it's like, just stay to the point, stay to the point. And so he's, dear dad, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if, you're, you're, if you got to make an apology to your dad, like that's a pretty good letter. Pretty good letter, right? Like if you're gonna if you're getting trouble with a parent, try that. Like that's it's a pretty good letter. He puts together a really good speech. And the, like as you read this, like oh man, there is no way his dad's gonna turn him away now. Like like just look at this speech. It's, it's powerful. It's beautiful, right? And he says, "I am no longer worthy to be called your son." And before I had kids, I was just like, "Okay, that's a nice thing to say." But now that I have children, I'm like, if, if my kids said that to me, the question is, when have you ever been worthy? It's never been about worth. It's not about like how good you are, or it never will be. It's because you're my kid, and you are never going to be able to be worthy. You are never going to be able to, to outrun the love that I have for you. Why? Simply because you are my kid. You are my child. Ava and Emma, if they would say this to me, there would be no way I'd be like, oh, okay, you're right. You're not worthy. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Go brush your teeth with the toothpaste I bought you. Go put on the pajamas I bought you. Go lay in the bed that we bought you because we love you, and there's nothing that you can do to remove that love from us. I mean, think about this. Has this guy ever done anything to be worthy? Before he sins or after he sins, has he done anything to be worthy to be called a son? It's never about worth. I mean, as you think about this, like no baby, no baby is born as the result of their own effort, right? Like the, the doctor is not with a megaphone sh shouting down the birth canal, come on, child, we're waiting on you. It's all up on you. That's not what happens, right? The mom works. The dad claims he works, but the baby, she, he's just along for the ride, okay? Like, here's the reality. Like, we aren't born on our own effort. There's nothing that we can do to earn this. Our sonship, our childship has never been about our worth. It's never been about our performance, but it's about Jesus' finished performance. 
That's what makes us children of God. It's not about what we do. It's not about how good we can try to be. It's not about the way that we can try to work. No, it's about the fact that God is our Father. And nothing is ever going to change that. Because God helped us because we could not help ourselves. The end of verse 20. Let's, let's go ahead and read verse 20. It says this, So when he returned home to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I love this phrase. I love this part of the story because here's where I picture the dad every single day sitting out on his front porch, just scanning the horizon looking for his son. Every single day he's walking out, he's looking for his boy, he's waiting for him to come home. He's just sitting there and he's watching him. And you know the neighbors have had to tell him, like, give it up. He's gone. Give it up, man. Like, he, he doesn't care about you anymore. He doesn't want you anymore. And all the while, he just continues to look out the porch. He keeps watching for his son and catch this statement, friends. It says, while he was still a long way off. That's the story of our lives, isn't it? The best we're ever going to get is still a long way off. It's the best we're ever going to get. If God helps those who help themselves, the best we're ever going to get is still a long way off. This is us. But but the father, he's looking, he's seeing him. He says this, the father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Here's the reality. The best we'll ever be is a long way off. God knew we could never come to his level, so he came down to our level. We couldn't make our way. We couldn't work our way to him, so he comes to us. He comes down to us, and here's what the father does. He sees him, and what does he do? You guys catch this this word. He what? What did he do to his son? He, He ran to his son. Now, in that day, men didn't, they didn't run. Like, not because, like, they didn't want to exercise. Like, it was undignified for a man to run, especially a man of status. And so this guy, like, this would have never happened. When Jesus is telling this story, all the people in the the room would have been like, well, my dad has never ran. My dad would never do that. But the father in this story, he's willing to do that. He lays everything aside, all the social norm. He lays his dignity aside, and he goes, and he chases after his son, He is so overwhelmed with love. He is so overwhelmed with joy that he doesn't care what anyone else would say. He doesn't care anything else. All he is going to do is he has to get to his son as fast as possible. And he is willing to do that. And not only does he run to him, and like, I just just picture this moment, right? Like, think you're the son for a second. And your dad starts running towards you. What's flashing through your head right now? Like, okay, what is about to happen here? What is dad about to do? I know I've messed up. Like, I don't even get a chance to say my speech before my dad knocks me out. Like, there might be these, these moments, these, these anxieties beginning to go on him. But he goes and he, he embraces him. And he kisses him. And, like, maybe you're thinking, oh, kisses on the cheek. No, that's, that's not the word here. No, it's smothering him in kisses. He is just, like, he's so in love with him. You guys remember where the son just was? Where was he? In the pig pen. You guys know this about pigs? They stink. The father doesn't care. The father doesn't care. 
he wraps his arm around him anyway. He doesn't care about the mess. He doesn't care about the smell. He doesn't care about the stench. He wraps his arm around his son, and he kisses him. And he doesn't matter anymore. And like at this moment, like he's wrapped in this beautiful hug, and, and the son starts to, he wants to just fall into this hug and, and collapse into his father's arm, but something is wrong. He realizes, oh, wait, wait, wait. I, I don't deserve this. And, and so he, he's like, oh, yeah, my speech. I, I, I wrote this great letter, and he, he, he remembers this. And so I don't know if you guys know this about me. I am a hugger. I love hugs. Like, growing up, like, this is the second time I've talked about hugs, even in this sermon. Like, I, I, I love hugs. Growing up, my mom told me I was the best hugger. I don't know how that makes my dad feel, but, you know, I, I love hugs. I've always been a hugger. Growing up, I was taught hugs, not drugs, and so that was the way that I lived my life. And if you are a hugger, one of the things you start to realize is there are some people, they just don't know how to hug. Like, you go and hug them, and it's like hugging a mannequin with arms. They're just like, I don't know what to do here. And it's like, you go and you wrap them in the big bear hug, and they're just like, I, gotta, I just like can't wait for the embrace to end. Or it's even like more awkward. Like, you go in for a hug, they go in for a handshake, and they're like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. And then you go in for a handshake, they go in for a hug, and you're just like, this is like some kind of weird dance we're doing here. And it's like, some people just don't know how to hug back, right? And this is this moment for this kid. Like, he doesn't just embrace the hug. No, he wiggles out of it. In verse 11, he says this. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember, catch the word worth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son is just, he refuses to accept this free gift of grace that his father is giving him. He believes that he, this is all about himself. He believes he has to earn his salvation. Once again, he uses this word worth, but here's the reality. Salvation has never and never is about worth. If salvation was a matter of what we were worthy of, we all fall short. The reality is grace, it isn't fair. If we all look at our lives, we don't want what's fair. The beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair. And so he goes and he tries to, to tell this story. Listen in verse 22 through 25. But his father said to the servant, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get the ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Notice the father doesn't even let the son finish the speech. Remember? The speech is, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. The father doesn't even let him finish the speech. It's faulty anyway. He knows it. And so immediately, he says, the party began. And who is the guest of honor? The son. The son who has just made a mockery, made a mess of his life. And can you just imagine being the son for just a minute? You're just walking around, and all of a sudden, you're out of the nasty clothes that the pig had. And now you've got, like, you've got this robe on and these finger, this ring on your finger and these sandals on your feet. And you're just like walking around, and you just begin to think, could it really be true? Could all of my terrible decisions, can all of my sinfulness just be forgotten because my dad said so? Yes. 
And the same thing is true for every single one of us. Like maybe we have this guilt, and we have these deep-seated sinfulness in our lives, and we just feel constantly feel guilty. And we're just wondering, is like, can that all be forgiven? Can that all be forgotten simply because Jesus said so? Yes. Yes, it can. And this is this beautiful, beautiful moment. And like we would expect as we read this story to, to finish, and they all lived happily ever after. It's not how the story ends, is it? Let's keep reading, verses 25 through 28. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what is going on? Your brother is back, he was, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Notice, who's the one who goes after the son again? It's the father. The father goes after two lost sons in the story, one who is, who is lost outside of the house, one who is lost inside of the house. This guy has been doing all the right things spiritually, like he's ticking all the boxes. If there was ever someone who could say, okay, God, I've done enough to earn you, it's this son. He says this, like, I've done everything you've told me to do, but his heart isn't right. His heart isn't in it. And his son, he goes out after him anyway. And like at this point in the story, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they know they're the son. They know they're the older son. They know that Jesus is talking to them. Verse 29 and 30 says this, but he refused. All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you have told me until now, apparently. And all that time, you never gave me even one goat to feast with my friends Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by, by killing the fattened calf. Son's presenting his work. Here's what I've done, God. Here's what I've done, Dad, to earn your right. Here's what I've done to earn the party. Here's what I've done for you to love me and, and celebrate me. Here's all the things that I have done. But grace is opposed to earning. And I want you to catch this in verse 30. He says this, he says, Yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. You notice the, the father isn't caught off guard by the son's sin. I, I don't know what the older son is expecting. I don't know if the, he's expecting his dad to be like... I didn't know that. Well, in that case, you go eat the fattened calf and he can come sit outside. Like, I don't know what the older son is expecting of here, but it's beautiful that this sin, it doesn't catch the father off guard. He's not like, well, okay then, never mind. Same thing is true of us. God knows us more truly than anyone else. Our sinfulness, our tendencies, these things in our lives, they don't catch him off guard. Why not turn to him? He knows they're there anyway. He's ready to hug you. He's ready to embrace you. He's ready to throw a party in your honor. Your sin is not catching him off guard. That's, I think that's actually a slide. Yeah, Jesus isn't caught off, caught off guard by our sin. Verses 31, 32, the story ends this way. It says, his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this day, for this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he's found. 
I love this. The father knows the son doesn't deserve the party. He just doesn't care because it's no longer about worth. It's not about what he deserves. The sinfulness, it doesn't catch him off guard. Our sinfulness, it has not caught Jesus off guard. It's what he went to the cross for. He went and he nailed our sin to the cross. He dealt with it for us, not because it's something that we could do for ourselves, because he knew we couldn't do it on our own. And so he goes to the cross and he saves us. Every single one of these stories, there is a party that is thrown whenever a sinner is found. Friends, Jesus loves lost people and he celebrates when they're found. And as we start thinking through the story, it's like, what son are you? Where are you in the story? Are you the prodigal? I think a lot of times we, that's the way we look, oh, that's where I was. Or are we the son? Do we get uncomfortable when sinful people are around? How do we begin to feel in these moments? Here's the thing is God wasn't just willing to forgive sinners. He's absolutely passionate about it. And so God helps those who helps themselves, right? No. God helps us because we could not help ourselves. And so as we get ready to close in the next few minutes, there's this, this prayer that I heard a few weeks back. And I just thought this prayer was really, really powerful. And, and so it's, it's, it's a reality, and it's for us, it's acknowledging that we can't help ourselves, but what we do is we respond to God who's willing to, to rescue us. And so the only thing that we can do is, is to accept is to accept his forgiveness. And so this p- prayer was actually uh, phrased by a one-year-old, but I think it's a really powerful prayer. So let's go ahead. And I, just, I want you to repeat after me as we pray this prayer together. You ready? Jesus, help. Amen. Jesus, help. Amen. So here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. I just want everybody to close their eyes. And we're going we're gonna to pray this prayer. I'm going to walk through some scenarios for some of us in the room. And maybe some of them are things that are going on in your life. If that's the moment, I just want us together to say, Jesus, help. And so maybe, maybe it's for you. You don't want to say it out loud because the person next to you, that's fine. Say it to yourself. I would encourage you to say this out loud so people can know, come alongside you. After the first one, you'll kind of, you'll kind of get what we're doing here. But. So maybe some of us here in the room this morning. We don't really want to be here. Spiritually, we're, we're dead. Spiritually, we're just walking through the motions. We don't really want to be here. And there's just this apathy in our lives that's began to grow. And this apathy, these things that we're, we know the right thing to do, and we're just doing it because, you know, mom might get mad or my sister might get mad or, or whatever it may be. And there's this apathy in our hearts. If that's where you are together, let's pray this. Jesus, help Maybe in your life there's this temptation that you can't seem to take care of. You've tried as hard as you can. You've downloaded the blockers. You've brought the accountability partner. You've quit going into the shop. And you just can't seem to beat this temptation. Together we say, Jesus, help. Maybe there's some in the room that the marriage is just falling apart. And people are saying, hey, you should quit. Give up. It's not worth it. The reality is, God wants us to fight. So we pray this together. Jesus, help. Maybe some of us in our lives, we have this unforgiveness in our hearts. 
This person did something to us and we are struggling to get past it. We, we, we want to forgive, but we just can't. There's so much pain. There's so much hurt. They, they can't believe what you, you can't believe what they've done to you. And there's just this unforgiveness in our hearts. And so together we pray, Jesus, help. Maybe there's some others of us in the room. This one's powerful for me. <laughs> You're exhausted. The kids aren't sleeping. There's tons of things going on. And you're at your wit's end. Your patience is gone. You're just, you're just tired. And you're trying to love these kids and love these people that God has placed in your care. And you're just, you don't know if they're getting the love that they need because you're so worn out and you're so tired. Together we say, Jesus, help. Maybe some of us have a person in our lives that we want so desperately for them to come to know Jesus. Our hearts ache because they don't know him. And so we just, we pray and we ask, God, I, I'm afraid of evangelism. I'm afraid of telling the truth. I'm afraid of this. But, but God, I just, I know these people need to be in relationship with you. So together we pray, Jesus, help. Maybe there's some discernment that we need in our lives. There's some decisions that are coming up, some things that we need to do, some, some decisions that we need to make, and we need some wisdom together. The reality of the scriptures is that, that God gives wisdom to those without finding fault. So if that's you in these moments where you need discernment, together we pray, Jesus, help. Maybe there's a loss of a loved one in your life, and that grief is just suffocating sometimes. The pain of that, it just it comes up from time to time, and, and we don't really know what to do with this grief and this pain that we feel. Together, we pray this. We say, Jesus, help. Maybe there's a past trauma in your life. Something was done to you that you didn't deserve. Somebody treated you a way that you were never supposed to be treated, and there are the deep scars that are in your heart now. And together, we pray, Jesus, help. Maybe there's a friendship. That's so strained. Like we, you, maybe you were close at this one time and there, there's been some things that have gone off in this friendship and, and things just aren't quite going the way that they're meant to anymore. And together we pray, Jesus, help. Maybe you're working in a dead-end job. You hate your job. You don't really want to be there. You had these hopes, you had these dreams for a future and these careers, these plans that you maybe want to, you thought you were going to do, and they just never seem to be adding up anymore. So we pray, Jesus, help. And as a group of people in the Republic of Ireland, man, I know if your heart's anything like mine, it breaks for the, the lost souls in our country, the lost people in our world. And so what we need we need revival. We need to see where the people of God rise up and we share this faith and, and the movement of God happens that transforms this country, but not just this country and this world. The only way we can do that is through Jesus. So let's pray this together, church. Jesus, help. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, we thank you that you are willing to help, that we can come to you and that you, you care deeply for us. God, thank you that you, you helped us because we couldn't help ourselves. And Lord, I pray that today, maybe it's the decision we make is to stop trying to earn our way to you, but just to turn to you, to repent, to accept your grace and your forgiveness and to live out that 
live out that forgiveness, to live out what you have done for us. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.